Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. We have another episode of Provocative Inquiry Ahead designed to inform and enlighten. This is two hours for those interested in exploring the nature of our universe, our consciousness, the power of our thoughts and intentions, how and why they interact if they do, all in our attempt to understand what it means to be human. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more than not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, waits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. All right, Rav, it's time for you to extend one of those really super-duper special invitations to everyone. Come join you in the chat room. But I've got to make a correction first. We don't have a great chat room. We have the best chat room. A great group of people. I'm contradicting myself, aren't I, right away? We have the best group of people (laughs) in there, and uh, it's always lots of fun and very educational too. So do come join us. I do like uh, talking to everyone individually in there. So go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. See you there. All right, in our Spotlight of the Week segment, this week we turn our attention once again to artificial intelligence. Now, not long ago, our Spotlight was all about the robotics and the role it is taking in everything from warfare to health care. One of the principal hiccups, or holdbacks, if you will, of the past has had to do with the program involved in its emulation of intelligence, or AI for artificial intelligence. That may well now be a thing of the past. Early this week, we learned that the famed Turing test had actually been beaten by something called the Eugene Gustman chatbot, a program that simulates a 13-year-old boy. One headline read, quote, Be nice to your computer, explanation point, close quote. Why? Well, now this is really quite a feat and indeed a big deal. Devised by mathematician Alan Turing in 1950 in his paper Computing Machinery and Intelligence, the Turing test is considered the gold standard for gauging how far we've come in the field of artificial intelligence. The test is named after Turing, but the roots of it go back to René Descartes in the 17th century. It strikes not only at questions of artificial intelligence, but also at the limits of automata in general the question of how we know if other people possess consciousness and even the philosophical basis of materialism. The idea is that an interrogator communicates with two contestants, one human and the other machine, solely by text. The interrogator asks questions of each for five minutes and then decides which one is human. If the machine wins more than 30% of the rounds, It's regarded as having passed the test. Up until this past Saturday, no program, no computer program had ever achieved this. But on Saturday, the chatbot, Eugene Gustman, scored 33%. 
quoting Gizmak, Eugene Guzman was developed in 2001 by Russian-born Vladimir Veselov, Ukrainian-born Eugene Demkonecho, and Russian-born Sergei Ulasin in St. Petersburg, and is designed to simulate a 13-year-old boy in Odessa with an abrasive adolescent personality to match. Continuing, freelance writer David Zanzi writes, Of course the test has implications for society today. Having a computer that can trick a human into thinking that someone, or even something, is a person we trust is a wake-up call to cybercrime. It is important to understand more fully how online, real-time communication of this type can influence an individual human in such a way that they are fooled into believing something is true when in fact it is not. Remember Al from 2001 A Space Odyssey, the 1968 American-British science fiction film produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick? It appears that the science fiction of 1968 is very close to becoming the way of science today. And like the proverbial surgeon's scalpel, the promise for abuse haunts the future. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, it's, uh, I find it fascinating that, um, you know, before computers were readily available, science fiction movies constantly portrayed, you know, the dangers behind it. Well, you know, we've had all these movies about artificial intelligence and the dangers behind it, but it gets played down until it becomes common usage. So now computers are in everyone's homes and they're controlling our lives. I mean, my phone will track me wherever I'm going. It'll tell me who's close by. It'll, you know, send my private information off to the government. There's a great deal of power there. And then when you conflate it with the artificial intelligence, imagine having a robot in your home that had access to all of that information. I find it scary, actually. I don't, I don't think you have to imagine it all. And, and I really don't think the movies have played it down. A lot of our entertainment has uh, gone the other way, you know. Um, and, and a lot of the news, you know, what Snowden was all about, uh, has been a, a, a wake-up call, a real warning. Uh, you know, take that tinfoil hat off of some of those so-called conspiracy theories because, you know, they're not theories at all. They're fact. But, you know, last night I did a, a, well, two-and-a-half-hour interview on uh, Late Night in the Midlands with Michael Vara, and a doctor, Michael Nuccelli, called in, and we had this conversation on the air. He has a a software program called iPredator, and it's really designed to protect you uh, and, you know, your communications with people on the Internet, protect your children, et cetera, and so forth. And here's a point that I made with him last night. Think about this. There are predators on the Internet. We all know about that. Uh-huh. Okay. But let's say that there are 10,000 of them today throughout the world. Imagine a robot. You know, we've written a software program. It... Uh, fools you 33% of the time in believing that it's a real human being. It interacts with you just as this one did. It, it thinks, it responds, it anticipates. And that's what's necessary in order to defeat you, uh, in order to give rise to you thinking that indeed you're talking to a real live human being. Okay? Now instead of 10,000, 
we just go ahead and put 10 million of them out there. They're out there everywhere, contacting anyone and everyone that's on the Internet, attempting to do whatever they, a predator is designed to do, get your credit card information, take your money, you know, et cetera, and so forth. And um, they're as competent at fooling you as a human being, perhaps even more so. Now, there I hadn't thought is about, fear. I hadn't thought about that part of it. I was just obsessed with the government. Um, but, you know, you're totally right. I mean, any technology that the government has, you know, there are people in the private sector who have access to it too or find their own ways around. And some of these computer hackers, you know, they're pretty darn good at what they do. And this was not computer or, I mean, government-developed uh, technology, by the way. This no, is, but you okay. bet they'll use it soon. Oh, I, I'm not discounting that. <laughs> I'm just, you know... It, you know, sometimes we focus on government when indeed it's, you know, the criminal, what I think of as the criminal is not government, okay? Not to say that government doesn't do some <laughs> nefarious things, but, you know, it's not government. It's it's the person out there that wants to take advantage of you. It's the person that wants to rob, uh, you know, the elderly, the retired, uh, you know, um, through... Think of all the the scams that there have been aimed at uh, the elderly just to take yeah. their life savings. And, and, you know, those scams are limited by the number of human beings that are sociopathic in their, you know, in their nature. But a machine doesn't care about psychology. So we may have just a few sociopaths. But one sociopath armed with this technology is suddenly a million, two million, ten million, uh, like dialers, those automatic dialers calling you on the phone, coming in bulk, like bulk email to your uh, your computers, to your uh, smartphones, et cetera, and so forth. And it all comes down to how they're programmed originally as to how they develop. So just like human beings, you can get good human beings and bad bad people, um, and they develop and grow up, and some people become real criminals. Well, in the, in, in the scenario you're talking about, if you get a criminal who creates an AI, but they have programmed it, well, the AI can only develop in directions that are not in everyone's best interest. It just compounds itself. Well, okay. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Enough, all right? Every week I read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Kim Sheridan. We spoke about animals in the afterlife. Richard wrote, Very likable, interesting lady today. What does it all mean? Some things just present us with a puzzle. I always measure these things by how it would apply to the lowliest and most disadvantaged beings. Who would reincarnate to starve to death in one week's or one day's time, for example? The thing I wonder is, are all these discussions of a loving universe just a luxury of the middle class looking for greater realities? Interesting question, Richard. Mark commented, I agree with Kim that we should treat animals better and not overbreed them. But that's a far cry from endowing them with Jeffersonian human rights. Andrew wrote, you could tell Miss Sheridan was empathic by the way she described everything. And I think, like Dr. Taylor suggested, that would be very hard to live with when you're around so many dying pets and their owners. Elizabeth wrote, 
I love the show with Kim Sheridan. I wish more people would get involved and help protect our animal friends from abuses. Now, last week was the Hay House Summit, and I had one hour to answer one very surprising question. You know, I think about it as the final exam, you know. (laughs) Um, And that question was, do we really have free will? Gwyneth wrote, you were by far the best speaker on the summit. Thank you and for making it available for free. Thank you, Gwyneth. Annie wrote, I just listened to your interview and it was phenomenal. You really are one of the most provocative speakers I've ever heard. Can't wait to try your meditation. Thank you, Eldon. MG wrote, Eldon, the case you make for free will seems to be something that determinists such as Sam Harris miss. Harris, who, as you know, wrote the book on free will, argued that we don't have free will. After all, where do our thoughts come from? They just seem to pop into our minds, giving us the illusion of free will. However, as you say, if you so choose, you can have control over what goes into our minds, which is the point you make about free will and the point which seems that which he seems to miss, he meaning Sam Harris. Victoria wrote, Thank you so much for sharing your brilliant insights last night on Hay House. I've been thinking of what you said all day and telling my friends about it and have been trying to find it to listen to it again, but no luck. Honestly, it was one of the most interesting conversations I've ever heard in my life. I wish everyone could hear it because it has the power to change our world for the better. Thank you, Victoria. You know, hey, how sometimes replays these things. Uh, you know, I we don't have a clue if, if that will happen. But if I do learn, I'll certainly let everybody know. Moving on, Nolan wrote, anyone who has not tried Intertalk should, for they make things easier for themselves. I agree with that. And Connie wrote, I really enjoyed the items I purchased in the past and have decided to try some more. The one on lowering sugar levels was really amazing and worked so well, but my husband wouldn't listen anymore once he found out what it was I was playing. Well, it fixed your sugar levels, Connie. Congratulations. And as for your husband, where there's that old saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Bridges to Heaven, True Stories of Loved Ones on the Other Side. We have hosted a number of authors and mediums who have reported speaking to the dead. James Von Prague for example, shared with us what it was like for young children to grow up in heaven. Our guest today, Sue Frederick, insists that we all open ourselves up to the idea that we can communicate with the dead. Not only can we, we should. Sue Frederick has been an intuitive since childhood. Her copy states that she draws upon dreams, ancient numerology, powerful intuition, and conversations with spirits to help her clients fulfill their soul's mission and use their pain as inspiration for a meaningful life. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, CNN.com, Real Simple, Yoga Journal, and Natural Health Magazines. She has trained more than 500 intuitive coaches around the world, and she's learned that everyone is capable of lifting the veil and having their own direct healing experience of their departed loved one's presence. Sue believes that seeing and talking to your departed loved ones is not only possible but necessary in order to heal your pain 
and live your most meaningful life. Her research reveals the gift of loss and how it's designed to fuel your greatest work. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Sue Frederick. Pleasure to be here. Good. I'm glad you're here with us today. <laughs> Listen, we like to get three things uh, out of the way with our guests right up front if we can. Mm-hmm. Who are they? What is their message? And how do we use it? So to begin with, please tell us about yourself. What was your childhood like? Were you popular in school? <laughs> you know, what were your passions then and have they changed? Well, I was a child of the 50s, so the environment that I was growing up in was pretty conservative and uh, conventional, and yet I was always more of a right brain child. I was a writer from the time I could could write, and I was writing books and novels and mysteries and poems and passing them around to my friends, and I was having dreams that came true down to the last detail, like car accidents that I would tell my family about over breakfast, and that car accident would happen later in the day, and so I was always sort of odd for the 50s, <laughs> and uh, and yet I feel very blessed looking back on it because I had a great, um, uh, I had some teachers in my Catholic school who really were very uh, unusually uh, gifted in their ability to see who I was and help me navigate, and they taught me a lot about many different spiritual paths and said that intuition was sort of okay according to the Buddhists and the Hindus. And these were Catholic nuns who were quite enlightened back then. And so I was always sort of encouraged to learn more about what I was experiencing. Uh, And then I went off to college in 1969 and joined the world in the big shift that was happening, you know, marching against Vietnam and uh, being able to be my own intuitive, weird, hippie self for a long time. Like, you know, lived on an organic farm and started a natural foods restaurant back in the early 70s. And all of that also had a huge spiritual component to it. I was always asking, why am I here? Who am I? What is life about? And I studied every spiritual path I could ever explore from theosophy to Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., uh, and also continued writing. And my, I guess I could say my biggest wake-up call was when I was 29 and my Outward Bound, we were both mountaineering instructor in Colorado, uh, me and Paul, and we thought we were so strong and invincible, and he was suddenly diagnosed with cancer and died a year later. And And that really made me have to recognize that, you know, yes, my life is going to be different I'm turning 30, and I'm grieving my husband, and Paul's death had a huge impact on me because it was such a conscious death, and I saw his spirit leaving his body, and he came back often to communicate with me, and that put me on the journey that got me here all these years later. (laughs) Wow. So, uh, what, I mean, when you went, you attended the University of Missouri. What, yep. What, what were you thinking would be your career path when you went to college? Well, I thought it would be a writer. As I, as you know, I, I've always been trying to write from the time I was a kid. And so I thought, well, everybody in the 50s said, well, if you want to be a writer, then you, you go to University of Missouri to study journalism. But when I got to University of Missouri, there was so much more important things going on from, you know, stopping the Vietnam War, et cetera. And 
at the time, I just couldn't function in the regular university world. I was having such an awakening on every level and um, so many profound spiritual experiences that I dropped out of University of Missouri and then later went back when I was ready and then got a degree in psychology instead. (laughs) (laughs) And then years after that, after Paul died, I, I went to school at University of Colorado to study journalism and creative writing. And, you know, I say everybody here has a gift that they use to navigate the world and to take them on their journey. And for me, my writing was my way of understanding my intuition, my spirituality, and understanding life here on planet Earth. Okay. Now, you refer to yourself as an intuitive, uh, but, you know, some have called you a psychic career counselor. Please <laughs> define what you mean by intuitive for us. I mean, you already told us that you you have visions of uh, automobile accidents or mm-hmm. dreams that come true. Mm-hmm. You know, are, are you clairvoyant, clairaudient? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, do you fit under one of those labels? You know, flesh that out for us, please. Well, you know, I... Because it was my natural way of experiencing the world for a long time, I didn't realize that it was different. You know, I mean, when you are used to sort of hearing other people's thoughts or seeing an image and suddenly understanding what that's about for somebody you're talking to. And one of my earliest uh, gifts that I remember was that from the time I was a child and I would meet someone, I could see kind of I don't know how to put it in words. I could see who they came here to be. Like I would say to my mom, oh, well, Mr. Smith, that man over there, he he wants to be a doctor. My mom would say, well, what do you mean? How do you know that? You know, and and she would be very irritated with me for saying odd things. And and but I could always see that what people's dreams were, what they came here to do, what I call now their soul mission and you know and i and so that was always a big piece of how i understood people was understanding their dreams and it was much later when i realized well that's what i need to be doing for my career is helping them understand their soul mission their challenges their pain their gifts what they came to experience and what their departed loved ones have to say to them and that became the way i created my work in the world Okay, now, do you have to see a person to know what their soul vision is, or are you able to do that by just communicating with them? Or, Well, talking to a person, I work by phone, you know, so I can talk to people. And I use, since when my husband died in 1980, I learned numerology. And the numbers have always been uh, a gateway for me of understanding a soul's journey. So that what I teach my clients now and my coaching students is how you look at someone's birth date and use that as the gateway for understanding what they came to learn, who they are, what their gifts are, what their loss is all about. And that's what I do with my clients. I use the numbers as the gateway. I see. All right. Now, one more question on that. Mm -hmm. Paul was your soulmate, if I have read your material correctly. Well, Um, I think he was one of them, Eldon. I mean, I think we have different soulmates to teach us different things. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you flesh that one out when we come back from break. (laughs) We we have a hard break coming up here. Uh, The idea that we have multiple soulmates... uh, 
I find that most interesting. Uh, we're speaking with Sue Frederick about her life and book, Bridges to Heaven, True Stories of Loved Ones on the Other Side. You can learn more about Sue by visiting her website at http colon careerintuitive.info. I, you, most browsers will just get it if you go careerintuitive.info. Remember to jo- join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. want you to stay tuned. You don't want to miss what's coming up uh, after a few words from some of our friends. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Praise for Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're visiting with Sue Frederick about her life and book, Bridges to Heaven, True Stories of Loved Ones on the Other Side. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. This often provides some truly interesting insight into our guests, sometimes even another dimension into who they are. Now, we just played some of All You Need Is Love by The Beatles. So why is this song important to you, Sue, and how does it tell us about who you are? (laughs) Well, there are several different pieces to that answer, and one of them is my relationship with Beatle music, which, you know, I was in seventh grade when Ed Sullivan had the Beatles on, and it was an awakening moment for me because what Beatles songs meant to me was it was a call to know or recognize that there was 
a different level of love and inspiration that I could find in my life than what I was experiencing growing up and that I could go searching for it as soon as I left home. They represented some higher consciousness to me that I had yet to feel I could grasp hold of growing up in the South in the 50s and in the 60s. And I... You know, their music really was precipitous in me going off, leaving home at 18, going on my, my spiritual journey, asking all the hard questions. Uh, and to this day, I feel very deeply connected to, especially John. I visited his home in uh, Liverpool, and I feel very deeply connected to him on the other side. You know, I wonder if the Beatles have any idea just how much <laughs> impact they had on how many people. You know? I know. Uh, Ravinder and I were discussing earlier today the fact that, uh, you know, when the stories of failure become success, right. uh, the Beatles were fired by their first recording company. You, you flesh that out, Ravinder. You were, you were sharing it with me. Yeah, no, th- there, was, there was an article on all these different famous people. But, yeah, it just amazed me. They were told that guitar music was out and their right. sound just wouldn't catch on. And it, they were, yeah, they were told they were bad. And not yeah. only that, how they've but, lived on. <laughs> but you know, the thing that gets me the most about the story is that John had lost his mother. We all know that story, and you know it was a devastating loss for him. And he was sixteen, seventeen, something like that. And Paul, you know, a few blocks over in Liverpool, had lost his mother to cancer. And those two boys found each other, came together. And from their grief and pain, started writing love songs in the porch of Aunt Mimi's house where John grew up. And they were already turning their pain, their grief, into love, into beautiful music that would someday enlighten the world. And that I can't even think about that without feeling a connection. I mean, that story alone shows how we're all here to take our pain and turn it into love and beauty and inspire the world. This certainly shows the potential. There's no question about that. All right, before the break, Sue, you were about to tell me about, I don't know, <laughs> twin soulmates, how we can have more than one soulmates, serial soulmates. Now, you know, I've kind of made fun of that because there are folks that, you know, talk about soulmates, and they've, they're they married to their soulmate, and then they flush that one down the drain and marry another one, right. and then another one. And, I, you know, I've just kind of called that serial uh, soulmates. So, you know, tell me what you mean by we have more than one soulmate and how that works, would you? I believe that we have a group of souls that we've incarnated through many lifetimes with, and we love this group. It's our soul posse, so to speak. And we all have each other's highest good that we're trying to help each other grow. Our agreement is to love each other and help each other evolve and, and to reconnect in different lifetimes and through pain and love, help each other awaken. And, you know, Paul certainly was recognizable instantly to me as someone I knew, you know, we call that a soulmate, someone I recognize, someone who opens my heart. And... His lesson was, we are not physical beings. We are souls on a journey, and I'm going to prove that to you once and for all with my exit and the way I cross over and the way I come back and communicate to you. And that was the greatest gift and the greatest lesson of my life. It was also the most painful. And 
you know, since then I've had, I will even call my best girlfriend Chrissy, who I met in first grade and who died of cancer a year after Paul died, who again caused me huge spiritual growth uh, through pain as another soulmate who's part of my group. And then the man I'm living with now who we met in our 50s and recognized each other instantly as love, loves, and in fact had been born just a couple months apart and had experienced the Beatles and all of these things that were part of my life, were a huge part of his life, like we'd been living these parallel lives. And so now we raise our children together and he supports my work 100%. And it's a different kind. I call that sort of your coming home relationship soulmate where you've been through so many lessons and you've done your work and you're evolving and then you meet the partner who sort of walks you home and yeah. that's what that's who i'm with now all right so soulmate we're not we're not talking twin flame kind of material this is like a soul family i i get you you heard the setup piece why should we all learn to communicate with those who have left us in this world because the ones we love who've crossed over, you know, they are part of this soul group that we're talking about, and they are um, very determined to try to help us heal and move forward because we are still here for a reason, and they are on the other side for a reason. It's part of our agreement with them. And so from the other side, they are trying to say to us, you know, you're, I'm okay, you're okay, please don't waste your life grieving, please start moving forward on your, your journey. And their messages are filled with that kind of love and encouragement and help for those left here. And when we die, you know, when we cross over, we go through a big soul review, so we see our life in a very much more conscious way. And then we want to also help our loved ones who are here to kind of wake up to the bigger purpose of their life. Okay. So I have this straight then. You first began communicating with the other side when Paul passed, or do you think you were communicating with the other side prior to that through your dreams, your intuitive? I I mean, my dreams were always uh, just off the charts, you know. I mean, dreaming about an event that would happen the next week and down to the last detail, the color of it, precognitive dreams. And when, you know, people would cross over who I was kind of connected to when I was growing up, you know, they would show up in my bedroom that night and like a grandfather and um, uh, a classmate in high school. And those things at the time when they were happening as I was growing up, they were more terrifying to me than anything because I really didn't understand them. Mm -hmm. And finally, when Paul and I went through our journey together, I sort of learned and began the spiritual understanding of what was going on and why Paul was in my bed the next night after he had crossed over, giving me a hug briefly before he had to move on. And and now it wasn't scary to me anymore. It was just the recognition that this is real and this is how souls our journeying this realm and the other realm. Okay, so I have to ask you this, okay? Mm-hmm. I, I see you're a student of psychology, obviously. You have a degree in it, and mm-hmm. I've spent my, you know, most of my life studying why people do things and, mm-hmm. and therefore how the mind works, how the brain works, right. etc. 
And, you know, there's a great philosophical question all about free will. Mm -hmm. And so you see something that's going to happen a week later. It's it's an accident, Mm -hmm. and and a number of people are going to die. That pretty well tells me that the world's predestined in certain ways. Well, I love that question because I struggled with the idea of free will versus destiny for many, many years in my lifetime because I want to believe that everything is free will. And so how can there be these precognitive dreams and things like that? And what I've made peace with of it through my understanding is that it is free will and destiny here that we come in with certain destined challenges that we're going to face, and yet our free will allows us... For example, Eldon, I, with Paul's death, I could have turned to drugs, alcohol, negativity, bitterness, you know, and my whole life story would have turned out differently. And instead, I went on a spiritual searching journey that allowed me to turn around and use my pain to help others. This is free will helping us navigate certain challenges that we've come here to experience. In the dream story, what's so interesting about that is that in my car accident story from childhood, for example, I explain over breakfast that we're in Denise's car and we're on the way home from school and and I'm in the back seat and... Uh, Gwen happens to be driving it instead of Denise, and there's a green a truck with green doors that shows up in front of us, and it's padlocked, and we bump into the back of it. And at the time, my dad goes, we don't dream in color. How do you know the truck was green? And so that was our argument. And then, you know, two days go by. I forget the dream completely, and we're coming home from school, and Um, Denise has a headache, so Gwen drives the car, and we're on Old Shell Road, just as we were in the dream, and this truck with the green doors and the padlock shows up in front of us. And at this point, I'm screaming, this is my dream, this is my dream, slow down, slow down, slow down. So when we hit the truck, it is a bump that is not devastating, rather than what it could have been and what the dream seemed to be, a much more intense car crash. And I believe that if we are shown things like this, it's because there is an element of free will involved in it. Okay, let me ask you this then. Uh, let's assume you're shown something, but it's you're not in it. Somebody else is in it. Somebody you know. Mm-hmm. It, it, is it incumbent upon you to warn them? I mean, uh, should they know? I mean, should you be using this talent to this this ability to protect people? To well, so see for example, have... yeah, I mean, when I work with clients, this comes up because I'll often dream about them the night before because I'm already trying to connect to them and see who they are, and so they'll I'll see stories about them in my dreams, and then what I the way I work with this is I say. You know, in my dream, there you you had a health issue, and I'm just saying this so that you can really uh, take charge of your health and avoid and possibly avoid uh, a, something that's coming up and that I wouldn't have dreamt about it unless there was some element of you being able to uh, move through this in a better way. Okay. All right. Uh do you have spontaneous dreams about people that you maybe recognize that you then also step out to warn them about? 
Yeah, I mean, I well, I'm a mom, so I've had dreams about my kids, of course, and and <laughs> dreams about their friends and stuff. But I'm very careful about how I share this because I, you know, as all the spiritual teachers say, there's love uh, and fear here, and those are the two main energies. And I don't believe we should ever put anyone in fear because if we say, oh, something bad is going to happen to you, then suddenly they're in a place of fear, which then kind of makes everything worse. It does not empower them to sort of move through it in a better way. And so I'm very careful with how I share that, share things. I only share things if I can say, you know, and these are things you might do to kind of make this go in a good direction. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, so did you dream about this radio show? <laughs> Um, you know, I don't think I dreamt about it, but it's curious because I started reading your books a while back and you were sort of in my dreams talking to me and, um, and, uh, and I I shouldn't probably even share this, but you said at the time to me, you said, um, I have to be very, uh, uh, smart and left brain for my listeners, but I want you to know I have a huge heart and we'll connect that way. And I said, okay. And that was our little conversation in my dreams before before our show. How very, very interesting. <laughs> All right. Let's 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 do this. Uh, you're familiar with the Kubler-Ross model of grief, the right. five stages, right? Right. So how do you see your model fitting into this? Where does it fit in or do you? Is it is it a standalone in and of, us, in and of itself? Well, you know, I think Kubler-Ross did us a great service by talking about grief and and bringing it into our consciousness and saying anger is okay and all these things are okay, because literally before her work, we, you know, people couldn't even allow, we didn't talk about it at all. You know, you, you would be at your church where the family was over there grieving the loss of the mother and, and people would just go up and you know, say, everything's okay and I'll pray for you. You know, that was about as intimate as we were. And thanks to Kubler-Ross, people began to talk about death and grief in a much more open and healing way. But what, what I believe that that still lacked was the ability to understand it in, in a more, uh, I guess you could say spiritual way, because to me, death and grief is a spiritual crisis, because suddenly, even if you've never thought about these things before and your loved one dies, you are suddenly now asking, who am I? Why am I here? Why did this happen? Where did they go? And you may even be part of a church, and suddenly those churches' answers don't resonate as true for you anymore. So you are launching on a spiritual exploration journey. And that's much more about what my work is about, is about helping grieving people to ask those questions and go on their journeys to find their answers and to have meditation experiences that begin to give them experiences of something beyond the physical world. I like that definition. You know, when you do lose a loved one, it's very, very difficult to... uh maintain a posture of agnosticism or atheism right and, uh, if you're in that place uh, you know the loss is uh, like you say it's a spiritual challenge i like that definition okay uh, many of us i think have sensed a loved one when they've crossed over i mean mm-hmm. we sense them perhaps you know maybe we feel their presence or 
when my best friend passed away, I he was burned um, over most of his body during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, he was in the Navy, and, 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 and well, that's a long story. Anyway, <laughs> uh, he had a particular, a very unique body odor. And when he passed over, you know, I, I smelled his body odor on, mm-hmm. on several occasions, and I had the sense that he was there, and I sometimes yeah. would you know, talk to him as though he were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also, you know, the psychologist to me knows that you know, we want to feel that they're there. We want to, you know, we we can manifest these kinds of things purely out of our head. Mm-hmm. Um, let's assume it's real. How do you suggest going about the process of learning to communicate with the deceased? Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you just touched on, Eldon, is everyone's struggle to believe in what we can't see, touch, and feel, right? I mean, when we get into this dense realm, we are living through our five senses rather than our six or seven senses that we have. And, you know, there's many different theories about why we choose to have this limited perception down here. And, you know, we have to move from our, what I call our, ego lens into our divine lens. This is kind of how I help my students understand it. When you are down here in the physical world, you're saying, if I touch it and feel it, see it, taste it, it's real. If I can't, it's something to be skeptical about. Now, that's good. That helps us, you know, learn to navigate down here in this world, get the laundry done, (laughs) etc. But once someone crosses over, we are being called to strengthen our perception to reach into our sixth sense and feel what cannot be explained, to feel what the left brain logic cannot define. And that is our what I call putting on our divine lens to see what looks beyond the physical world and open ourselves to those experiences. So that could mean, and this is why I believe meditation is so helpful, you know, you've got to chatter, you've got to quiet some of that chatter in your mind in order to be able to shift into your right brain perceptions, your intuition, your ability to sense things from your sixth sense. And most of our day is taken up by the laundry list of things we need to worry about that our left brain is supplying us. And so we sit, do meditation, we quiet the mind. I really am a huge fan of the Buddhist and the Hindu techniques of mantra repetition. And by quieting the mind, taking a breath, we begin to shift into our right brain perception, our ability to sense beyond the physical world. And then we call out and say something loving to the person we're grieving for because love is a powerful force that calls in their energy. And we begin to feel in our body when they're with us. And then I have my clients write. I say, ask your loved one to answer a question you're struggling with. Start writing the question and then just write whatever comes through that you don't edit, that you just let it flow on on the paper. And, you know, my students will write two and three pages and then we share that. And it's just profound because everyone recognizes that the voice is different from their own ego mind, that it's coming from somewhere else. And I find this so healing, Eldon, because it's not like me going, yeah, your son is there and he's dancing next to you and he's so happy because they can go, well, that's interesting, but it doesn't change their life. And if they sit down and they go, why did you have to leave so early? Why did you leave me here? 
then the child's spirit will start writing to them, speaking to them, and they'll begin to get healing messages that they can do every day if they want to. That's sort of an automatic writing exercise, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm a writer all my life, so yes, I always turn to writing as a tool for connecting and learning. When I sit down to write my books, I always ask to have guidance and inspiration, and every great writer and every great artist, I believe, is quieting their left brain mind and opening up to their right brain intuition and ch- and channeling in their their vision, their inspiration, whether it's writing or painting or music or anything. Right, unless you're my son answering a uh, particle physics uh, essay in a final examination at UW today. You do really a great job. Uh, I, I think you call this process the break your heart wide open meditation mm-hmm. uh, in your book. Isn't that correct? Yes, and also I have, uh, well, I call the one I just described your reconnection meditation. And the break your heart wide open meditation is a little different about moving pain out of your heart. And we can talk about that if you want. You know, please, you know, do differentiate them for me. Okay. So one of the things that keeps us from connecting to our loved ones on the other side is our grief, our pain, because it weighs our energy down, brings down our frequency, and the spirits on the other side are free of their physical bodies, and they are of a higher energetic frequency. So when we're just devastated in grief, and you know, often I work with mothers and fathers who are grieving children, and their grief is so overwhelming, they can't, they can hardly get out of bed. And so they've got to find a way to start moving some of that pain out of their bodies so that they can raise their vibration and connect to their children. And so I do the Break Your Heart Wide Open meditation where we, again, quiet the mind with mantra. We repeat sacred sound. The mind begins to settle down. The mind is what is telling us how terrible everything is, and it's finally quieting. And then we put our hand, our palms, in front of our hearts and say, I ask to feel and release the pain in my heart and take a deep breath and picture that pain pouring into your hand and then moving it off to the divine and say, please transform this pain into love. And then continuing to do that and crying as it comes out, if you can, and picturing yourself moving it out and offering it to be turned into love. It right. I hate to cut load. you off there, but we've got a break coming up, so okay. we'll pick that right. up when we come back. Okay. Again, if you would like to know more about Sue Frederick and her work, visit her site, careerintuitive.info, or check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com. We have a film featuring our guests during the break. You can watch it in our chat room, so if you're not already there, do get on over there. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. darkness she is standing right in front of me 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Sue Frederick about her book, Bridges to Heaven, True Stories of Loved Ones on the Other Side. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me on Facebook.com, Dr. Eldon Taylor, D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. All right. Now, we just played some of your second musical choice, Sue, Let It Be by the Beatles. Uh, I, 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 I can guess what the story is here, but I want you to tell us. Paul was actually writing about his mother, Mary, his, his earth mother, Mary, who had died of cancer when he was young. And he describes it as having been a very inspired song that came to him very quickly, and, uh, and that even though it was about his mother, it appealed to the world at large about connecting to the other side, about whether we're talking about the, the mother Mary that the Catholics talk about or we're talking about our mother on the other side. Uh, it's a huge effort on his part that works beautifully to really raise our consciousness to feel the peace and the love of the divine realm. Yeah. All right. Was there anything else, Sue, that you wanted to add to uh, what you were telling us about uh, Break Your Heart Wide Open Meditation? It's just that if anybody is in pain and grieving and they're saying they can't connect, they don't feel their loved one around them, you know, one, they can sit down, they can just move some of that pain out doing the meditation that I describe in my books and that that will help raise their vibration so that they are more, much more able to hear their loved one trying to talk to them. Okay. Last week, our guest spoke to us of animals in the afterlife. From your experience, do animals have souls, and will we find our animal friends on the other side? And if so, is it possible to communicate with them just as we do with our, our fellow humans? Well, I do believe they have souls. I've had many experiences of that of, with my own animals. And when I've worked with clients, sometimes they're grieving for their cat or their dog. And, yes, I feel those energies, um, you know, when I connect to them. And so, yes, I do believe they are part of our soul collective. They take a different form, a different body for different reasons. Um, and that's not something I devoted my life to studying, just like your other guests, so I can't really say more than that, except that I do really feel their presence from the other side. Have, have you been able to uh, actually communicate with pets that you've lost? Yeah, in fact, you can even communicate intuitively with the pets while they're here, and one of my best stories about that was when I was a single mom many years ago and I was really struggling. I hadn't launched my work yet, this work. I was still being a journalist and my journalism career was crashing and burning because it was the crash of the dot-com era in 1999 and I had been 
you know, VP of content for big websites, and suddenly that whole world was crashing. I couldn't get a job. I was so devastated. And our beloved cat, who my daughter was adoring, was diagnosed with inoperable cancer and sent home to die uh, in a week. And I laid with my beautiful cat saying, you know, I know you just came in to be with us for a while in this body, but my daughter and I can't lose you right now. We need you so much. Is there any way you could stay a little longer in this body? And I just kept asking him that over and over. And my vet will tell you that that cat lived another 10 years, impossibly, because I didn't treat him for cancer. I couldn't afford it. And at some point, he even had kidney failure. And once again, I said, you know, please, we're not ready yet to let you go. And it wasn't until I had met Gene, my husband now, and Sarah, my daughter, and I had moved in with him, and our life was in a great place, that he had this beautiful, peaceful exit in our arms. And that, and it was just so conscious. It was such a conscious death. And he really showed me that, yes, of course, cats are souls, and they are part of our group. I love it. In your communications with the other side, Sue, have you ever encountered bitter souls, or for that matter, what many would think of as uh, mm-hmm. a so-called evil spirit? Yeah. Well, in my younger years, you know, I had some frightening experiences that way, and, and I believe it's because at that time I really didn't understand the power, the whole idea of love versus fear. So, for example, many people play with Ouija boards, and I think Ouija boards can really uh, bring negative lost souls in who are just unaware that they can reach out for love or light and be called into the higher realms. And so they're just sort of lost on this lower astral realm looking for connection here. And so as part of every kid's experience back then, you know, we had these pretty terrifying Ouija board experiences. And then in my own life, I had an experience of scissors being thrown across a room, which was pretty scary. But then as I really got into my spiritual work and began to understand it all from the spiritual perspective, I realized, you know, when we're afraid, we we are creating and attracting more lost souls. And so our job is to fill the room with love if we're scared, and that that even helps the soul who is might be lost, who is trying to communicate in some negative way, that if we love them and send love to them, we're helping them transform and even move up to the higher realms. Interesting, really. So um, let, let me ask this. You know, there have been all kinds of stories about poltergeists, uh, about possessions. Um, There's even a very famous case where uh, a woman is sexually molested over and over again while a team of parapsychologists film it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your experience, again, communicating with the other side, is that something that we should take seriously? I mean, if you have... Well, you see, I believe that those people who are going through that, because I've studied a lot of those cases, you know, watching them on TV and different things, reading about them, and it seems to me that the the person who's alive and experiencing that, their energy is very kind of lost in their fear and their negativity and that they have some relationship with this, dark entity on the other side and that they can cure that or heal that 
again, by bringing love into their heart, by uh, not living in fear, by shifting their own life more into love and light through, you know, like I hate to keep using the word spiritual per, per, uh, practice, but by trying to understand what what life is really about. And that when they go on that journey, they can end that relationship. They can, uh, that entity won't be attracted to them anymore. I mean, when we cross over, we move through those lower realms. All of us do. And if our energy is very dark and negative, we can temporarily get kind of lost there. But the moment we call out for love or light or say, God, help me, or anything like that, we are brought into light. We are brought into the higher realms. And I think many people here struggle because they're so lost in fear and negativity, and it brings them into a a low frequency where there are negative things that can happen. Well, then let me ask you this. I mean, there are many mystical accounts that indicate that, you know, part of our karma, if you will, might be carried out where when we're in these lower levels on the other side and that, you know, I mean, we can really experience a lot of anguish, pain and suffering mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, is that consistent with how you see it, what you well, experienced? Only if, only if our soul is choosing to learn that way. And there are many other ways to learn. And, you know, I can choose, my soul can choose to have a very painful life here on earth to push me to grow. Um, And like we said, I'll have free will all along the way about how I'm going to respond to these events. And my soul can choose to process some things in the astral realms when I've crossed over. Uh, And the more awakened we are, the more we understand what's happening and, and the love of all of the universe the more we don't linger in the darkness. All right. One more question on this subject, I guess, Sue, mm-hmm. before we go further into, well, before we take on another aspect of your book. Um, James Von Prague, John Edwards, they do readings for other people. Uh, you know, past, uh, mm-hmm. they, they talk to deceased loved ones of other people. That's what mm-hmm. I want to say. Do you uh, do that sort of work? And if so, do you find it satisfying? Well, I, when I'm work, working with a grieving client, that's what I'm doing, but I'm trying to also get the client to do it. So, you know, I'll say, this is what I'm getting and feeling from your loved one. Now, I, I've taken you through the process. You know, what are you writing? Like, often I'll say, all right, both, let's meditate. Let's do the reconnection meditation. Let's call them in. I'm going to write down here what I'm getting. I want you to be doing that, too, because at the end of the session... I want the client to say, wow, you know, this is what I got. Yes, they got that stuff, and that's awesome, but look what I got, <laughs> and now I can do this any time I need to feel my loved one. So, yes, it's a reading, but it's a little different because I'm trying to get the grieving person to participate. I see. All right. Talk to me about cremation. You know, there are blogs out there like the Memorial Chronicles blog that discusses cremation and grieving from the perspective that there is an advantage to having the loved one near you uh, after they've passed, uh, both, you know, um, from a psychological standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint. So two questions then. Do you think this is truly helpful? And what about those folks who insist that cremation means there's no resurrection and therefore it's absolutely wrong? 
But, you know, the soul leaves the physical body the moment the last last breath is taken. I've had so much experience of in my own life of knowing that when my father was in the hospital of die, dying and uh, I was at home babysitting the kids and I sat down to meditate and he appeared instantly looking 30 years younger and healthy and happy and started joking around with me and he was so vivid that I couldn't, I said, was like, Dad, what are you doing here? And then I realized, oh my gosh, he's probably just crossed over and I called the hospital and he had just had a heart attack. And and so the soul is not in that body. And and what I believe also from my studies is that when we cremate the body, it actually helps the soul to be free of that body and move quickly to the other realms and not be pulled to linger around like if we're all you know I, I have my own strong beliefs in this but i don't think we should embalm bodies and we should create that whole ritual of going to the grave site that might be a place where the soul knows that it can come and meet you because you're going to be quiet there and listening and asking to, to feel them and so it's like a spiritual meeting place for them but the the soul is not in the body once the last breath happens. Okay, but now I mean, there's kind of uh, there's there's a bit of a dichotomy in what you just said, and I and I want to pursue that a little because mm-hmm. there are, there are a number of accounts that suggest that organs donated maintain some memories of mm-hmm. the individual. That is. Uh, People who receive a donated organ often report knowledge of the person that they have received that organ from. I shouldn't and, say often. Yeah, but, I mean, but, in quantum physics talks about how everything is a, is a hologram here. So we have pieces of our soul and our energy that may linger in organs, but not the entire soul. And, you know, and truthfully, Eldon, that's a point for me that I... I've never expressed this in public before because I don't I wanted didn't want the judgment that would come with it but I have a very hard time with organ donorship because I do believe there is a piece of a little bit of that soul that might linger because someone else has your heart or something and that the soul needs to be free of the body so this is something I've really questioned all my life well, I struggle with that myself, and I mean, I have looked at a lot of research that would suggest uh, that it's not a good idea. And then, of course, you get you get caught with uh, right with the opposite that maybe you're saving somebody's life, and know. you know we're here to do that, and uh, and I, know. I mean here to help others, and so it, it the polarity can be really disconcerting. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's one of the great um, kind of spiritual questions here that is unanswered. Um, you know, like on my driver's license, I am not an organ donor, and every time I renew my license, they're asking me why, you know, and I'm and I'm like, I'm just, I can't, I don't want to have to tell the world that I am concerned that my soul would somehow still be in those organs or a piece of it, and I want to be free. I want to be able to move on to the higher realms, and I hope that I'm wrong. I'm, I hope that that is not the case. Because I do want to believe that we can give our whole body away to save somebody else's life and that our soul is completely free of that. And hopefully that's the way it works. Well, you know, some of the mystical literature suggests that our soul lingers with the body as the cells die. I mean, we know, okay, um, you're deceased, um, you've just passed over. 
your heart's not beating, your brain's no longer receiving oxygen. But that doesn't mean that every cell in the body has been shut down. You right. still have cells that are multiplying and dividing, if you will, having babies. Right. And that internal environment continues, and it continues for some time. And I, I don't, by some time, I don't mean a few hours right. or a few days. It continues for a very long time, you know, by that standard. And, and, and if indeed, you know, we were attached holographically, right. even using your model, then then we're somehow grounded. We're somehow, you know, we're either fractionated, as you suggest, and or we're, you know, we're unable to leave until every single cell. And, and that all seems rather morbid to me. I know, and I hope that isn't the case. And I agree with you. I've really sort of struggled with this. And when Paul died, we you know we made it so clear he wants to be cremated, and it was so that his soul would be instantly free. And I've got it in my will that I want to be cremated, and um, I certainly don't want my body embalmed and my loved ones standing around that body trying to call me into that body because I'm going to be long gone. <laughs> but but this is one of our great mysteries that I hope we will understand and hopefully there are brilliant metaphysicists and scientists like you brilliant minds like you Alden out there who are going to really figure this out all right let's go this and I think you talk to the to the other side more often than I do so <laughs> you, you 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 should ask that question but like you I I have that in mind as well you know cremate me and spread my ashes mm-hmm. and all right uh, tell us about suicide. I've had uh, an author inform me that he was told by those on the other side that when a person commits suicide, they are earthbound, more or less, and suffer a sort of agony worse than uh, death. I do not believe that in any way. And I have worked with several grieving mothers of uh, children who commit not children, but 20 young adults who've committed uh-huh. suicide. And from what I feel from those souls in the communications I get, you know, they do their life review and they cross over like all the rest of us. And in that moment, they feel and see all the ramifications of their actions on the people who loved them. And that's a huge awakening for them, a huge jolt of spiritual awakening for their soul to suddenly realize how things could have gone differently. And then they're often brought into other realms to sort of learn and study and understand how things, you know, how to live here again and and try again at another time. But often they also come back to try to comfort the mom and help relieve guilt because that's the worst piece of a suicide exit is that the people left behind always feel there was something they could have done to prevent it. And it isn't true because it's the soul's choice to exit. Interesting. Okay, let's do this, Sue. Let's let's now turn back and, and start through your book rather systematically here. Mm-hmm. Using intuition is is the foundation to being able to communicate with the other side. Uh, if I've understood you correctly, that's what intuitive writing is about. Tell us, how, how do we develop intuition? Mm-hmm. Well, I look at it again as pretty basic left brain, right brain process. You know, we all come here with both both sides of the brain, 
and the left brain is meant to be our logic mind that helps us navigate this physical world, and yet our right brain is constantly feeding us uh, guidance from the divine realms and also inner, helping us open up to our soul's wisdom, our inner guidance, also known as intuition. And what happens is as we grow up, the right brain, of course, uh, is not honored as much in our world, and so the left brain becomes the boss, the logic mind, and that's what makes us smart in school and successful in our careers and able to get our college degree, and it's all a good thing. But then we become uh, lost because we're only now listening to our logic mind, and we've lost touch with our inner wisdom, our inner guidance that comes in through the right brain. Um, Meditation, again, going back to spiritual work, is such a huge way, powerful way, to quiet the left brain temporarily so that we can access the inner wisdom, the intuition that's coming in constantly from the right brain. And it works for everyone. You know, I tell people, if you have a right brain, you are intuitive. You have intuitive guidance coming in. You have an ability to feel the other realms. And, of course, you have a right brain or you wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> All right. Okay. So now you're saying strictly meditation, no other exercises involved to develop uh, intuitive skills. Just... Well, of course that's not true. There's many things we can do, you know, that can help us get in touch with our intuition and our right brain. But none of that, in my opinion, works if we're not at least meditating occasionally, hopefully once a day, to get into the practice of quieting and separating from our left brain thoughts and and feeling what comes in through the right brain. If we have that foundation of meditation at least once a day, then all the other little techniques that we can do, and I teach some of those and talk about them in my books, then those are great. They push us to become masters of our intuition and of our clairvoyance and our mediumship gifts and those are wonderful techniques but i believe the basis of it has to really be that meditation that practice of quieting the mind so that you know you're not your thoughts you feel it you're used to going into a place free of those thoughts because you do it every day like brushing your teeth and so you begin to live intuitively when you say you're not free of your thoughts um you know, most people, even in states of meditation, will have thoughts, experiences, right. okay? Now, you know, sometimes uh, that the information that they receive is just a matter of uh, psychology. It is what they would like to hear. It is uh, what they would like to, to have. How do you discern between the genuine and that motivated by your own selfish psychology? Well, there's a whole different resonance, you could say, in the way information comes from your brain, your subconscious, your the part of you that is navigating down here, and the information that comes in from the higher self or from intuitive guidance. And what I, the way I describe it is if you're sitting down to meditate, and you're having your worry thoughts come in, they'll say, okay, get up, you're wasting your time, you have things to do, oh, you need to go write that article, oh, blah, blah, blah. We know that's all the left brain, right? But when we ask a question and we say, you know, is this going to happen or that going to happen, we get an answer maybe at first from the left brain, and it's coming in in a kind of 
certain energy, the same okay, energy. I hate to ask questions and have commercials right on it. I have okay. to interrupt you, but I'm sorry. We hope you're okay. enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes and take your calls. If you have questions or comments regarding today's show, do call in. You can do that by dialing 1-877-230-3062. Stay tuned. We save the best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com or bto.net and or bbs.com, we want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Eldon's international best-selling book, Mind Programming, is a must-read if you wish to live awake in a world of sheeples. Film producer Jeff Warwick had this to say about mind programming. Dr. Eldon Taylor's new book is a must-read. If you've ever questioned your purpose in life or felt bound by a culture that's driven by mass media, you now have at your fingertips the knowledge and tools to break the chains of this cycle. Eldon goes in-depth to illustrate and expose how we've been programmed from birth by social constraints, and he methodically reveals the psychological techniques that advertisers, politicians, corporations, and the media use to control us. He then provides strategies and solutions to free your mind from these tactics and rise to a new level of consciousness. As you read this book, you'll feel the blinders being removed and will truly see the world in an entirely new light. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Sue Frederick about her book, Bridges to Heaven. We'll take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have a question of our guest or a story you'd like to share about a deceased loved one, yourself, either give us a call or submit your question in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. 
Okay, Sue, we just played some of Wow My Guitar Gently Weeps. What's the story here? Oh, that song is so beautiful. As everyone knows, George was such a spiritual seeker, you know, all of his life. He was the first one to drag them to India to learn to meditate. And he, you know, studied with spiritual teachers and his lyrics. You know, that line, I don't know why nobody told you how to unfold your love. I mean, that's just so beautiful. And I've had many dreams where George is helping me understand the numbers from the other side, which is strange, but he'll come and teach me certain things about different birth paths. And um, I feel he was a profoundly uh, evolved soul here. Interesting. You know, that, that is one of the pieces by the Beatles that I think is among their least played. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's of all of the guests that we've had, there are many that share your passion with the Beatles. Um, but no one has ever chosen that song. Uh, and, you know, it, it's the first time I really ever listened to the lyrics to the song. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it does seem to be one that we have overlooked. And also, George had such a great longing for spiritual knowledge, a longing, and I call that sort of that, the sadness of some of his songs, which I can understand so well. It's sort of a longing for the divine realms, for where we've come, that's so filled with love and being here in the physical world that is so hard compared to that, and sort of longing for that knowledge and that connection. And I feel that, you know, while my guitar gently weeps is that beautiful thing of looking at this world going, oh, my gosh, we are so lost, and yet knowing that there's something powerful and beautiful that he misses from somewhere. That's what that song means to me. Listen, uh, before the break, I had to cut you off. You were telling us about how we distinguish between wishful thinking and real information. Do you want to pick it up and change Yeah, I that, think please? that's such an important question. And the way to explain that is that whether it's a dream from the other side or whether it's an intuitive knowing, the way they feel different than, for example, a dream just from our subconscious clearing out junk or from our monkey mind, sending us more thoughts, is that the, the intuition comes in with a, a resonance of knowingness, love, and peace. So, for example, rather than feeling, oh, that's logical, or feeling, oh, well, I better go do that, I'm worried about that now, it's suddenly, ah, this is how it is. It's just this sense of, of knowingness, like you always knew this, why, why did you forget so, for example, I, I like to tell the story of I was driving to pick up, well, I was, my daughter was in grade school, and the, the principal called to say she had fallen and hit her head, and they thought she had a concussion, and I needed to come get her. And So I'm driving there, and I'm having a total mom freak out, as everybody can imagine, and I'm at the red light, and I take a breath, and I see my daughter throwing up, meaning showing me that, yes, yeah, she's, ha- she's having a concussion, And at the same time, I'm told, sort of knowing in my body, and it's all going to be all right. She's going to get through it. And those two images came through at the same time so that I was no longer afraid, even though I should have been afraid. I just felt empowered to now go in there and deal with it. And, you know, and it was a concussion, and she did get through it fine. And 
And so my vision came from my intuition to inform me of that. Now, I've heard some people, um, intuitives or psychic, uh, that claim those abilities, suggest that we shouldn't ask ourselves questions like, uh, "Is you know, should I marry her? Uh, should I take this job? Because we're not likely to get, uh, you know, genuine answers. We're mm-hmm. going to, you know, uh, the monkey mind, as you right. put it, is going to crowd out right. our ability to get, you know. Right. Uh, it, it, well, I have an that? example of that that might help listeners. You know, I was in a, after Paul died, I was in a pretty um, awful relationship with a man just trying to heal and being lonely and um, I was pretty lost in this relationship and yet I wanted it to work so much and one day I sat down writing because I'm a writer and just said you know what is Emilio here to teach me I said what is going to happen in this relationship and I started just writing, 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 and then this huge phrase came into my page that said, he will only disappoint you. And that isn't what I wanted to hear, and I know it didn't come from me. And it was my real clarification that, you know, I need to pull back from this, because if I'm writing this and it's coming out like this, this is coming from either my higher self or somebody on the other side who cares about me or God, however you want to define it. But it didn't come from my ego that wants this relationship to work. And so writing, again, is another way to help get guidance that doesn't come from the mind. All right. Now, I like that. Okay. Uh, you indicate in your book that uh, part of our sole mission is to heal our grief, you know, and I, and, and based on our conversation, you know, I would assume that let's heal our grief with our animal friends as well as heal our grief with, uh, you know, our human loved ones, uh, friends and so forth. Why is that part of our mission? Well, by heal our grief, what I mean is to understand it from our divine lens or our spiritual self, our higher self, so that we can then build a meaningful life and move forward and not waste our life in grief and pain. And that's our free will right there in action. So when a mother loses a child, she has every right to be angry at the universe and to be lost in grief and to blame others for what might have happened, and that is her choice, and that will be part of her journey. That's part of moving through it. But when she's ready, if she can then see that somehow her pain can be used to do work in the world that helps others and heals her as well as she does it and begins to move forward that way, that's her using her pain as fuel. And I write about that a lot in my books about, you know, if you've agreed to go through this great heartbreak of losing someone you love, I believe your soul chose this lesson so that you would then move forward and use your wisdom to help others. And it would, of course, evolve your own soul along the way. Okay. You know, now, I have to ask this. Tell tell me about, you know, modern centurions, law enforcement, uh, soldiers who are grieving, not the loss of a loved one, but the fact they've had to take a life, yeah. the loss of that life. You know, I am fascinated by war, and my heart goes out to absolutely every soldier. You know, my father fought in World War II, and 
Um, and it just sounds so weird. Everybody thinks I'm this kind of new age person, and my favorite books to read are always about the war, about Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Vietnam, because I believe that when a soul chooses to put themselves into a situation like war, we are choosing the most accelerated soul growth that we can pick on planet Earth. And those are brave, courageous souls who agree to go into that learning ground because what they're going to experience in a year a tour of duty is going to be more than most of us experience in 10 lifetimes and they're going to come back and try to put their life together and they aren't the same person and they've had this huge bump up against the soul so to speak that then they have to start turning into their fuel their reason for helping others and if they succeed it is so powerful and so enlightened. I mean, they've, they've, in my opinion, they've become the light carriers here. And my heart, I just can't even tell you, Eldon, it's such a, a thing close to my heart about how the veterans struggle to make sense of what happened to them. And often they have no, they've turned away from religion, rightfully so, because it hasn't answered their questions. But because of that, they've lost any belief in anything beyond the physical world. And yet their buddies and even the person who they may have had to kill is wants to communicate with them to help them understand that it was an agreement and that all is well and that they need to learn from it and move forward. Do you, you know, uh, do you do PTSD counseling, Sue? I mean, uh, do you work with veterans? I've had a few clients find me who were veterans and I've loved every minute of working with them um, but I haven't advertised myself that way but it's funny that you're asking because I was just invited and I can't wait to do it to go and speak to a veterans group and do some automatic writing stuff with them about connecting to the people on the other side that they're grieving for and I know that probably they'll be very cynical when I step into that room but I am really hoping that I can help some of them. I think you'd be surprised at uh, <laughs> the absence of cynicism, and and I think your perspective will be uh, appreciated more than you can imagine, much oh, more. And you should think about, no, I shouldn't say that, I'll say it differently. I think law enforcement has its place uh, where you could be very helpful, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would love uh, you know, what should uh, a person say uh, to someone else who has just lost a loved one. I, you know, I have a, a dear friend whose husband decided to end it all, and um, and he chose to end it uh, on an argument right. um, through a phone call, uh, and he basically told her that she was to blame for everything. And the phone, she said, you know, you're out to lunch. The phones were hung up. Uh, he went outside and shot himself to death. I don't know shot him. Yeah, yeah killed well, himself. First, okay. you know, one thing I want you to recognize for your friend is that your friend is a very old, highly evolved soul, or they wouldn't have agreed to go through this enormously painful lesson. And that recognizing that in them as you talk to them, holding them in that light, and asking them to tell you the story. I mean, the grieving person needs to share the details of that story until they're done talking about it. And when most of the time people need to talk about it for a year, they need to 
keep going over it. And the more questions you can ask, like, you know, did you have a sense this was coming? And have you had a dream since then where you've felt your loved one? And, and you know, what would you say to your loved one if you could say something? I mean, these are the kinds of helpful questions that when you can sit and have that conversation that can begin helping them move through their pain. And with the guilt, I mean, that's a whole nother level of pain that's going to force your friend to go searching for meaning in life because that burden of guilt is going to make her feel that, you know, that she's killed somebody and that's going to search, send her on a spiritual exploration journey, hopefully, to find out what life is about, why she's here, why she had that relationship, and ultimately to understand that that was his soul agreement to cross at that moment. His soul chose it. It was not her fault, and that she agreed to stay in order to evolve and someday turn around and help many people who are going through possible suicide, who are feeling suicidal, or have lost somebody through suicide. Your friend will end up helping them someday. And so generally we would follow that kind of a pattern whether it was a suicide or not i mean if if we have a friend that has lost a loved one we approach him and give him the opportunity to you know tell us the story and empty it out thing, and ask him Elden, the questions as, is that it yeah i mean well the beginning step is that most people are so horrified by suicide that they feel that that loved one who's grieving doesn't want to talk about it and that's of course the opposite of the truth they need to start talking about it until they feel like they can't even talk about it anymore and that's part of their healing that's the beginning of their healing and so you being that listener and asking the deep questions and i list a lot of those questions in my book not just the superficial questions and then even asking the questions eventually in the friendship and where do you think they are now you know what do you believe to be true about where they are and and you know and then sometimes exchanging a book with them well have you ever read this is this interesting to you or you know and just having that spiritual exploration journey with them if they're willing can bring them to a completely new place in their life all right before i move on with my own questions let me take a couple that we have in the chat room for you Mm -hmm. Mark says, uh, when does the soul enter the human form? After all, our cells are alive and developing in the very beginning of life. Mm -hmm. I believe it's from the moment of conception, and I've had my own experiences with that when my daughter uh, came into my body. Um, And, you know, and I don't believe that the soul... That brings up so many other questions. So in other words, like abortion, yes, yeah. right. But what I believe is that, yes, the soul enters in and starts preparing for a lifetime, but if it's not going to be fulfilled in the lifetime, the soul is coming in knowing this and knowing that their presence in the mother's body is part of the agreement of, of awakening for that woman and that when she exits, it's not when the soul of the baby exits, it's not a terrible crime or anything. It's another moment of growth for the woman going through that. Okay, so the free will is, I know it's going to happen. And the predestination is, I know it's going to happen. <laughs> well, some souls, and I've, I've communicated with a soul who came in and to be with 
the mom and then the mom and the soul recognizing that this was not a lifetime where her lessons could be fully learned the way she had intended. And the soul, this was a miscarriage and the baby's soul choosing to exit. And her message was, don't worry, I'll be back. And she was, right. yeah. Judy out of the chat room says, okay, I have a 33 over 6 life path. <laughs> you, do you have any advice? Yes, that is a very powerful master soul journey here. And your name is Judy. So what I would say, Judy, to you is that whatever you're doing for a living and however you're going through your lessons, make sure that your spiritual life is a big part of it, that you meditate, that you stay away from drugs and alcohol because you have a very strong uh, thread to the higher realms that connects you there more than you're connected to the earthly plane. So do your spiritual work. Keep your healthy body free of substances because they can really knock you off your, your plane. And do work that heals others. You're a healer or you wouldn't have chosen, this, chosen that path. Interesting. Uh, all right. So in your book, Bridges to Heaven, you say our departed loved ones try to communicate with us, but we block them out. What do you mean by that? Well, it happens through our pain. When we're lost in our heavy grief, we keep them from being able to communicate with us. But also our cynical mind tells us, oh, that was coincidence, you know, that little valentine heart that you just discovered from your departed husband on valentine's day that's what happened to me after my husband died that's just coincidence and so the cynical mind will tell you it's not true it's not real and so you'll negate the experiences and that's why dreams are so helpful because dreams uh come in when you're sleeping and so your resistance is down and then when you wake up if you can keep that cynicism away a little bit longer just so that you can review the dream and know if it carries that high resonance we're talking about and comes from your loved one that it really is a message from them okay uh let me ask you this if i if i interpret everything that you've set up to now uh, there's no such thing as an accident and i believe there is are there accidents in this world? I believe that the way we view life here, we think there are accidents and there are tragedies. And from what I've learned from the other side, the, everything is in divine order. We are here learning exactly what we came to learn. And yes, sometimes it's through pain and suffering. And it's often also from love and joy and inspiration. But we come into this dense realm called Earth for the purpose of learning and evolving and helping others evolve. So there are going to be painful moments. It's what we came to experience. So there's no such thing as an unknown. It, it is all a matter of, uh, you know, it's just done. It's a done deal. It's, it's all known in the sense of, uh, well, Christianity says omnipotence. Well, I, I'm not really saying that. I mean, for example, in my life and in your life, Eldon, we both came in with certain gifts, and we each had a soul mission that we intended to accomplish in our lifetime. And from the great work you're doing, clearly you rose through all of your challenges, seeking answers, looking for the light, and you came to help many people. And I've tried to do the same in mine. And there are other people here who have been... 
uh, suffering in their losses and they haven't been able to pick themselves up and get back on their path and fulfill their mission, but they're still here, so there's still time. And it's a journey for all of us. So the unknowns are where are we going to take it when we hit our great challenge? Are we taking it into light, love, and learning, or are we losing it in our negative self, our pitiful self, I call it? And how long are we going to stay there? That's our choice. Rectification of opposites, the middle (laughs) path. All right, Sue Frederick is the author of I See Your Soulmate, and the book we've been talking about today, Bridges to Heaven, True Stories of Loved Ones on the Other Side. Uh, It is a great read, and and you will want to... uh, to follow up on today's show and get your own copy. Sue, in 40 seconds, uh, how does everybody learn more about you? Visit my website, and you can remember suefrederick.com. That's my website, and you can get my books. I have books on finding your true work as well, and I have webinars, and I do sessions, and I'd love to help anybody out there, especially anyone who's grieving. All right, that's Sue Frederick. Frederick spelled F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K. Sue, it's been wonderful, a delight to have you here. I appreciate you taking the time to share with us all today. Thank you so much, Eldon. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have any comments on our show, please do let us know. Write me, contact me on Facebook, uh, you know, send me an email, eldon at eldentaylor.com. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.